This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Numbers. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Last episode, we were in chapter 26, and that one was entirely about the second census. And as we know, we're in Numbers, and it's called Numbers because they take these census. So the census, this one, the second one, had two purposes, another military count in preparation for invading Canaan, and it was to determine the size of each tribe by clan, family, and for the distribution of land once they take possession of Canaan. Some tribes increased, some decreased, and clearly the tribes that were faithful to God were blessed, and they increased. Judah, the tribe that will be where Jesus will come from, It is still the largest at 76,500, three times the size of the smallest tribe, which is Simeon, which has fallen to 22,000, a decrease of 37,000 men. Most of those 37,000 men probably died in the Baal worship debacle that resulted in Zimri getting speared with a Midianite priestess and a plague that struck the camp. And that's where we are right now. (laughs) It was a big deal. All right. In this episode, there's going to be a property problem in chapter 27. And it's a problem that stems from the Israelites' patrilinear problem. Let me explain. A big word. (laughs) I know, like it. I'm using big words. I'm learning new things. Patrilinear. Patrilinear. Well, what does that mean? Okay. In Israel, a father's property was divided between his sons after his death. The eldest son would receive twice the land, a double portion, than the others received. The other brothers, then all, it was divided evenly. Now, the daughters only received a substantial dowry consisting of clothes, jewelry, money, furniture, and if they had tons of land, maybe a gift of some sort. Once married, a daughter was the financial responsibility of her husband and became part of his clan or tribe as her sons would be after they were born. This patrilinear method of land division in the promised land would keep the property within the family, clan, and tribe. So see these 12 sons of Jacob, these 12 tribes, all were going to give land, as we talked about in the last episode, based on their size. And that land would permanently stay within that tribe. So that's why it went from father to father, because a daughter could marry outside her tribe. And then she would take land away from that tribe, which means that would be just a battle. So... This patrilinear ruling greatly impacted the family of a man named Zelophehad, and his daughters bravely brought the problem to Moses. So this is the story of God providing for Zephelahad's daughters. Chapter 27. The daughters of Zephelahad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Holga, Milka, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. 
Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relatives in his clan, that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. Zelophehad's problem is that he had no sons. So when the land that was promised was distributed, their family would not receive any. Zelophehad's name and line would disappear in history. The daughters were incredibly convicted and brave. If you if you heard what Heather read, like they had to appear in front of everybody. And for women, this was a big deal. And it, but they're so brave in their desire to honor their father and family. The women demonstrate their understanding of God's judgment on their father's generation by acknowledging that he died in the wilderness for the unfaithfulness of his generation. But they ascertained that their father was not like those of Korah's family deserving to lose their lives and inheritance. These women of faith believed in Lord's deliverance of the people and wanted their father's name to be listed among the clans of his family when they entered the promised land. So God's solution was fair and merciful. He granted Zelophehad's daughters and future families without sons land and inheritance. This seems like such a small, insignificant law change, but for women to be given land was a really big deal. And can we just pause and appreciate something before it's too late? That is this, Team Moses and God. I promise you, we will miss this team one day when we have moved on to the controversy in the books of Judges and Kings. There is a special relationship going on here between Moses and God. In this situation, Moses did something that we almost take for granted because we're so used to reading about Moses, but he faithfully takes every situation to God, whether it's concerning women or laws or sacrifices, whatever. He goes to God. How many times have we read that Moses brought a situation to the Lord or asked the Lord or prayed to the Lord? He has to be the most, if not in the top three, God-dependent leaders in the entire Bible. I think it's also interesting that it's a good example, this story, of how to respectfully bring a request before God, because God has laid out all these rules, but it also illustrates, and God's rule is the rule, right? But Mm -hmm. it also illustrates God's willingness to listen Mm -hmm. when something needs to be changed. Contrast that with a couple of chapters ago when the clan came and challenged, why should you Levites be the ones in charge? And they did it in the wrong way. And God's, to your point, Moses still took that to God. He does. And he knew what God's response would be. And that one was not as favorable as this response. So it's a good example also of how to respectfully challenge God. Well, and in this episode and the next episode that we're going to talk about, there's a lot of talk about, you know, women and how kind of there was all, it was a patrilinear society. But you can clearly see that Moses cares about the women because he could have said, like you said, the law is the law and sorry, you don't get the land. But he didn't. He cared. And he said, hmm, well, that's a fair request. Let me take it to the Lord and see. 
see what he says, if we can change the law. And sure enough, he could. We could literally do a study of Moses and God's conversations alone and learn so much from him about leading with the Lord as a partner because he truly treated God as a partner. The point is that Moses is faithful, period. He is, he diligently takes every single situation to God. And God is always so gracious and merciful in his response and fair in this case. Now, the note here for us is that this is such a simple lesson. We should just call it, you know, make the Moses move. Go to God first. I mean, if we just remember that, make <laughs> this is a Moses move. Go to God, go to God, go to God. Yeah. So then, what Moses move do you need to take in your exactly. life today? And how can you do Every a better day. job of thinking on your feet about that? Because how many times does somebody come to you with something and you just say no or yes or whatever instead of asking, yeah. hold on a minute, let me ask God about that. Yeah. I said this to my, my husband today. He called me on the phone and he has this decision to make about something. And I said, you know what? You need to just pray, be still and pray about it. You know, like Moses, we just need to wait on the Lord. Well, in light of God's mercy and provision for Zelophehad's girls, this next section is a little hard to swallow because why did God not show Moses the same kind of mercy and allow him to step foot in that promised land? God's ways are not our ways, but God, in a bittersweet move, does provide Moses a sneak peek of the promised land. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain in the Abram range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters of the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Mirabah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. So remember... Moses isn't allowed to, like Aaron, go into uh, the promised land because of this sin committed, which, gosh, I wish that God would just grant him a little mercy, just like, Because oh, well. he's been so good. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to know how to react to this because on the one hand, any time with God uh, has to be sweet. And at least Moses had this sweet time to sit on a mountain with his maker and look at his greatest future accomplishment, the promised land albeit from afar. On the other hand, I feel so bad for Moses. Did he find it hard to look at the land he worked so hard for? Knowing that one unfaithful move has kept him from living in the promised land? Can you imagine if our humble leader had been able to cross that boundary, that that <laughs> that that boundary between where he was and Canaan? Surely he would have fallen thankfully on his face, dug his hands into to the soil and wept. And really, it just seems so unfair. Certainly all of his faithful acts more than made up for that one unfaithful move. Nobody has fought harder than Moses to get the Israelites to the promised land. In fact, in terms of years and hardship, 40 roaming around the wilderness, no one in the Bible fought harder to faithfully execute God's plan than Moses did. And of course, Jesus is the exception, but of um, men, mortal men. It is so hard to accept what Isaiah said so succinctly in chapter 55, 8, but it really applies here to our situation with Moses. Isaiah said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we just have to trust that God had his reasons for not letting Moses into the promised land. 
The note for us is we cannot always make sense of what God was thinking. Our job, one that Moses is the gold standard for, is to just trust and obey. Okay, next we turn to succession planning. Any great leader will tell you that one of the most important things you can do as a leader is plan for your replacement. And without reading a single leadership bestseller, (laughs) Moses is on it. But the most interesting detail about this next section is that it follows the disappointing reiteration that Moses will not be given mercy for his sin and be allowed to enter the land. Moses still reacts with love for God, even though his sin is pretty much thrown in his face. His love for God, God's plan, and God's people are his first concern, despite his heartbreaking punishment. Moses could have looked at the promised land in bitterness. Instead, from that mountaintop with God as his companion, he looked at it and in his typical fatherly manner thought about who would guide his children into it once he was gone. What would happen to the Israelites without him? Who could he prepare to lead the rebellious prone people so that they would not stumble again? Who could take the Israelites across the finish line into the promise? Verse 15, Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over the, his, this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man who whom is the spirit of leadership and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eliezer, the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority. So the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eliezer, the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. God chooses Joshua to succeed Moses, and we're not surprised about this. But what do we know so far about Joshua? Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim and therefore a descendant of Moses my favorite of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph, who is the father of Ephraim. Joshua is first mentioned in Exodus 17 for his victory in leading the Israeli army against the Amalekites. So we know that Joshua is a military man, which is an important next step for Israel in the march toward the invasion of the promised land. In Numbers 11, we learn that Joshua has been Moses' aid since his youth. And in Numbers 14, Joshua and Caleb are the only two spies sent into the promised land that do not mutiny against Moses. And as a result, the only two men of the entire first generation who will live to see the promised land. Now here in verse 18, we learn that Joshua is a man in whom is the Spirit, which implies that he had the gift of the Holy Spirit. So how will Joshua lead when he takes over? The narrative makes clear that Joshua's leadership will not be the same as Moses. In verse 20, God told Moses to give Joshua some of his authority. So there will be a transition period from the two of from one to the other. 
God spoke face to face with Moses, but Joshua will learn of the Lord's will by using the Gurim and the Thummim. This is a form of asking God questions, and God answers through the drawing of lots or the casting of two stones. Now, note God uses different people with different gifts to accomplish his plan. Moses and Joshua are perfect examples. They are so different, but uniquely gifted for God's purposes. Where are you uniquely designed to fit into God's plan? All right, now we moved into commands for the second generation regarding offerings. Again, offerings. God is going to remind the second generation in this next section directly about the laws and offerings because they didn't hear it directly when it was told to their parents. This retelling also reiterated to them that while there was going to be a change in leadership, there was not going to be a change in worship patterns. The new generation of Israelites are going to be given a calendar of sacrifices or offerings to be made throughout the year. Now, the first mention of an offering is in Genesis 4 and was made by Cain and Abel, so way back in the beginning. The first mention of an offering being a sacrifice where actually something had to die is in Genesis 8, and that was made by Noah. However, it is in Leviticus Bible Book Club Season 3 that we read and discussed the detail of the offerings and festivals. The focus of what we're going to read in this chapter is different than in Leviticus. The focus here is the type and number of sacrifices that must be offered on every day of the year by the priests. These offerings will have an annual, that means every single year they got to do this, total of 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, more than a ton of flour, and a thousand bottles of oil and wine. While this may sound wasteful, remember that most of these offerings will go toward feeding the priests and Levites who did not get a share of the land in the promised land, to the Israelites who've been living on manna, this amount could be rather overwhelming. Um, But rather than overwhelming them, it must have brought them great hope. For if God commanded it, he would provide it. And that meant that they were going to be very productive and prosperous as a nation in Canaan. All right, so here we go. Chapter 28 begins with the daily offerings. The Lord said to Moses, give this command to the Israelites and say to them, make sure that you present to me at the appointed time my food offerings as an aroma pleasing to me. Say to them, this is the food offering you are to present to the Lord, two lambs, a year old, without defect, as a regular burnt offering each day. Offer one lamb in the morning and the other at twilight, together with a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil pressed from olives. This is the regular burnt offering instituted at Mount Sinai as a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. The accompanying drink offering is to be a quarter of a hin of fermented drink with each lamb. Pour out the drink offering to the Lord at the sanctuary. Offer the second lamb at twilight, along with the same kind of grain offering, drink offering that you offer in the morning. This is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The daily or regular burnt offering, the emphasis on this offering was the appointed time, and it created a rhythm to worship. 
Each day began and ended with the Lord. When the offering was completed as specified, it was a pleasing aroma to God, which meant that it appeased God's wrath provoked by their sin. Moving on to the weekly offering on the Sabbath. Verse 9. On the Sabbath day, make an offering of two lambs a year old without defect, together with its drink offering, and a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath, in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. The weekly also the weekly offering also was a burnt offering. The special offering made on this day every Saturday marked it as a holy day and therefore a day of rest, except for the priests, of course, who are always working doing these offerings. The two lambs offered every Saturday would be in addition to the lambs offered for the morning and evening daily offering. So those daily offerings are always going on. Moving on to the monthly offerings. Verse 11, on the first of every month, present to the Lord a burnt offering of two young bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With each bull, there is to be a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil. With the ram, a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil. And with each lamb, a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil. This is for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma. A food offering presented to the Lord. With each bull, there is to be a drink offering, a half a hen of wine with the ram, a third of a hen, and with each lamb, a quarter of a hen. This is the monthly burnt offering to be made at each new moon during the year. Besides the regular burnt offering, with its drink offering, one male goat is to be presented to the Lord as a sin offering. The monthly offering, also called the new moon feast, included a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a grain offering. This was a special offering, and therefore there is an increased expense to the offering. The new moon feast was a time of celebration and blowing of trumpets. And we learned about this in chapter 10, because the beginning of every month marked the passing of time and God's provision for them. From other verses later in the Bible, it appears that this feast evolved into an excuse to party rather than praising God for what he had done for them and keeping them alive. Note, the commentaries are all about this, pointed out that we have done much the same thing today. We have turned Christian holy days such as Christmas into cults of commercialism rather than praise for what God did by giving us his son. Ouch. Guilty. (laughs) Guilty. All right, moving on to annual offerings or feasts and festivals. They were interchangeably called feasts and festivals. For more details on the feasts, including their Hebrew name, the month they were celebrated, Bible references to them, the significance of these holidays today, and some really cool Bible bender facts. Check out our chart of feasts and festivals from season two that we will put in the show notes today also. So the first feast we're going to talk about, um, and again, these are annual feasts or festivals. So we've covered daily, weekly, and monthly, and now we're moving to annual. The first annual is the annual Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread Offering. So here's a question, though. They already had a Passover feast that they were already asked to do. And this is an additional? No, this is it. So in this section, you know, in Leviticus, we talked in detail about what it was. 
in this section, they're kind of going through the calendar of the year. So they're preparing to go into the promised land. This is a new generation. They've heard about those feasts, feasts, but he's giving them specifically, okay, this is how your worship of me is going to go. You're going to have daily. You're going to have weekly. You're going to have monthly. You're going to have annual. You got to keep him in order. And he's literally marching through the calendar. These, these annual feasts are listed in chronological order based on their year. Okay. So continuing in verse 16 about the annual Passover, on the 14th day of the first month of the Lord's Passover is to be held. On the 15th day of this month, there is to be a festival for seven days. Eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Present to the Lord a food offering consisting of a burnt offering of two young bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs, a year old, all without defect. With each bowl, offer a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil. With the ram, two-tenths, and with each of the seven lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. Offer these in addition to the regular morning burnt offering. In this way, present the food offering every day for seven days as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. It is to be offered in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. On the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. The Passover and unleavened bread offering included a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a grain offering. Now, Passover is the feast celebrated to remind Israel of God's redemption from Egypt. Remember when he passed over their households and and didn't kill them, but killed the Egyptians, the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, there's lots of the number seven in here and multiples of seven. Seven is God's number of completion originating in creation. On the seventh day, no work was to be done. All right, moving on to the annual festival of weeks, which is also called the Feast of First Fruits. Verse 26, on the day of first fruits, when you present to the Lord an offering of new grain during the festival of weeks, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Present a burnt offering of two young bulls, one ram and seven male lambs, a year old as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. With each bull, there is to be a grain offering of three tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with oil with the ram, two tenths, and with each of the seven lambs, one tenth. Include one male goat to make atonement for you. Offer these together with their drink offerings in addition to the regular burnt offering and its grain offering. Be sure the animals are without defect. The festival of weeks offering included a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a grain offering. This festival is held 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there's some cool days and facts about that. Check out the show notes for the New Testament. It was a time to give thanks for the harvest. No regular work was to be done on this day. Moving on to the annual festival of trumpets. In chapter 29, on the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets. As an aroma pleasing to the Lord, offer a burnt offering of one young bull, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bull, offer a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil. With the ram, two-tenths, and with each of the seven lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. 
These are in addition to the monthly and daily burnt offerings with their grain offerings and drink offerings as specified. They are food offerings presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. The Festival of Trumpets also included a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a grain offering. It took place on the beginning of the seventh month, which became the Jewish New Year, and a special trumpet was blown. Um, It is a sacred assembly and no regular work was to be done. Okay, the annual Day of Atonement is the next holy day. Verse 7. On the 10th day of this seventh month, hold a sacred assembly. You must deny yourselves and do no work. Present as an aroma pleasing to the Lord a burnt offering of one young bull, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With a bull, offer a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephath of the finest flour mixed with oil with the ram two-tenths, and with each of the seven lambs one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the sin offering for atonement and the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. The Day of Atonement, there's so much we could say about this, but we said it all in Leviticus. Go back and listen to it. I think we have a whole episode just on this one day. It included a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a grain offering. But most importantly, this was the one day of the year where the high priest could enter the most holy place, where he made atonement for all sin. It is also the day of the scapegoat, which again, I know we have an episode called The Scapegoat. It was so interesting. This is where it originated. We discussed this in season three of Leviticus in episode nine. It was the most solemn day of the holy days. It was a time of fasting rather than feasting, and there was no work to be done. Okay, the annual festival of tabernacles is next. Verse 12, on the 15th day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Celebrate a festival to the Lord for seven days. Present as an aroma pleasing to the Lord a food offering consisting of a burnt offering of 13 young bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With each of the 13 bulls, offer a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephath of the finest flour mixed with oil. With each of the two rams, two-tenths, and with each of the 14 lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. On the second day, offer 12 young bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bulls, rams, and lambs offer their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the number specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and the drink offerings. On the third day, offer 11 bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bulls, rams, and lambs offer their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the number specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering, in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. On the fourth day, offer 10 bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bulls, rams, and lambs offer their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the number specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering, in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. On the fifth day, Offer nine bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs, a year old, all without defect. With the bulls, rams, and lambs, offer their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the numbers specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering, in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. On the sixth day, offer eight bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bulls, rams, and lambs, offer their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the number specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering, in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. On the seventh day, 
offer seven bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bulls, rams, and lambs offer their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the number specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering, in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. On the eighth day, hold a closing special assembly and do no regular work. Present as an aroma pleasing to the Lord a food offering consisting of a burnt offering of one bull, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bull, the ram, and the lambs offer their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the number specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. I just want to tell the listeners that we do not speed Heather up. She really (laughs) reads that fast. (laughs) My brain just works that way. Just so fast and it's kind of rhythmic and I want it to be like, you know, and and the 12th day of Christmas. (laughs) You want to turn it into a song. I turned it into a song. Okay. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths is what Heather just read about. Now, the seventh month begins with the Feast of Trumpets on the first day, and it moves to the Day of Atonement on the 10th day. And then on the 15th day, they begin the Feast of Tabernacles, which lasts for eight days. So the seventh month, there's that number seven again, is a big deal every single year for them. Each of the eight days had its own order for sacrifice. This festival was celebrated to remember the 40 years in the wilderness by living in tents or booths for eight days. So a lot of them really traveled to Israel like later in the New Testament, and they would pitch these tents, these booths, and they would do this every single day. They'd observe this stuff being done in the temple, these eight bowls, seven bowls, six bowls. It was constant. Continuing on in verse 39, in addition to what you vow and your freewill offerings, offer these to the Lord at your appointed festivals, your burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, and fellowship offerings. Moses told the Israelites all the Lord commanded him. This was a lot. Every single year, like I said in the beginning, that total of number of animals they sacrificed. But there is an end to the sacrifice. Sacrificing was laborious and a continuous process that ended with Jesus. And Paul in Hebrews 10 explains it better than anything I could ever say to you. He said this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We were made perfect once and for all through that one sacrifice. And there you have the reason that we study the Old Testament, because it brings into focus the new. 
what's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.